We're starting our journey into the last section of the book of Matthew today. Can you believe that? Like we have been going through this book for quite some time and we're actually starting uh, the last section of this book. And in fact, I think we've been here for almost two years now in the book of Matthew. Um, so, and as I think a couple weeks ago, we sat down, we're mapping out our teaching schedule, and it looks like we're actually going to be done with the Gospel of Matthew, I think, maybe in the fall, believe it or not. So I kept telling Ron, I was like, I think we're going to be in here for like 50 more years. He's like, no, 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 I think, I think if we look at it, I think about September's there, you know? Um, so yeah, so praise the Lord on that. It's been, I hope you guys have been enjoying it. Um, but this last section of this book um, is exciting because there's a change of pace um, at this point in Matthew, starting in chapter 21, really until the end of the book. So if we remember, uh, you know, one of my uh, teachers when I was in college, Dr. Berg, uh, he would say often in Bible classes, if, the, if God didn't say X to the Israelites, meaning whatever this thing is, it can't mean Y to you. You guys follow me on that? So we can't scripture twist. We can't manipulate scripture into wanting it to say the things that we want it to say. We have to know who the original audience was and why it was important. And the gospel according to Matthew is, is special because it's introducing three major takeaways that we uh, need to know and was super relevant to the Jewish audience. The first is that um, Jesus is bringing his kingdom uh, into the lives of his people um, the second is that, I'm sorry, there's four. The second is that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and he's from the line of David. That's super important because in the Old Testament, the Jewish people thought um, that there was going to be a savior, a Messiah. There was prophets that said they would come from the line of David. So enter Jesus. He comes from the line of David. Um, we also see, and the gospel according to Matthew frames Jesus as a new and better authoritative teacher, much like Moses. And again, Moses is a really significant figure in Jewish history. He wrote, you know, the, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and then lastly, and this is probably the most exciting piece of the puzzle, is that one of God's names is Emmanuel, which is God is with us. So Jesus comes down and is with us. And that's very, very significant. And, and as I mentioned just before, we have seen Jesus come on the scene. He's announced his kingdom early in the book. He's brought his kingdom into the lives of people. He sent out his disciples. We see miracles. We see lives transform. We see demons cast out. We've seen all sorts of things. Um, and then we even got to see responses on how people responded to Jesus, good, bad, and ugly, and everything in between. And it's interesting because almost every negative interaction that anybody has with Jesus in scripture had to do um, with the religious authorities in the land. So all throughout Matthew up to this point, there's a tension building between Jesus and the local fuzz, the local uh, police or whatever term you want to use. Try to put a joke in there, maybe I was a little too quick. That's okay, you'll catch up. When you listen to it on the podcast, you'll be like, oh, that, yeah, there it is. So, um, so as this conflict continues to grow, last week, Pastor Ron concluded the fourth section of the book, which gave us the, the final glimpses of the expectations of Jesus. And remember, in that, for the last few weeks, we've, we've been using the language, the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, okay? So Jewish people believe that Jesus would come with a sword. Um, others tried to limit who was welcome at Jesus's table. Like, what a bad idea that is. Um, and all along, Jesus was teaching that if you want to follow the servant Messiah, well, then guess what? 
you have to become a servant as well. And now that we're in this fifth and final section of the book before its inevitable conclusion, um, I want to start by saying um, we're jumping later into chapter 21. We're not starting in chapter 21, verse 1, um, because that starts with Palm Sunday, and we're actually going to do that teaching on Palm Sunday uh, here in a few weeks. So we're not skipping anything. We are going to get to that. We're just kind of restructuring some stuff. And the fifth part of this chapter of this book, Tim Mackey and the Bible Project uh, called it the Clash of Kingdoms. And I'm stealing that from him because I really like that Um, because that's exactly what's happening. And this is chapters 21 through 25. And this portion of scripture, and I'm going to share this even though we're going to get into these teachings because we need to understand the context of the interaction that Jesus is going to have. Um, with some folks here. The chapter opens with Jesus coming into Jerusalem for Passover. And we have Palm Sunday. He's greeted with crowds, hailing him as the Messiah. And Jesus just like skips over all the praise and all the accolades, and he goes straight to the temple, and he, we see like angry Jesus for the first time, where he flips tables, and we see Jesus starting to assert his royal authority over the temple. And this is important, and the location is important, because this was the place that God met with the people of Israel. If you guys remember, we talked about atonement and sacrifices over the last year and why, how significant that interaction with God would be inside the temple. You see, Jesus does this, and he flips the tables over, because he believed the temple was compromised by the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. So this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing is meeting the kingdom of man. And this is the foundation of our interaction that we're going to spend time in this morning, that Jesus is in the temple flipping stuff around, and he he makes a statement where he says his house will be known as a house of prayer. And as he's saying these things, the chief priests and the elders, they meet him and start to question and challenge Jesus' authority. They question him about his authority. And in response, Jesus shares a few parables with them, uh, the first of which is going to be the focus of our teaching today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. If it's on your phone, you can punch it in. And if not, with the uh, magic of technology, we're going to put it up on the screen so that we can all follow along. So let's read Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. And it opens with, what do you think? And that's why I gave the context of what we did, because this is Jesus responding to the religious authority. It says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, like no parents ever heard that from their kid. He answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of these two did what the father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for being with us this morning. We thank you that we can approach your throne and spend time with you. 
Lord, we thank you for your word and how it challenges us and it grows us and it calls us into a deeper relationship with you, Jesus. Father, meet with us this morning. Challenge us this morning. Grow us deeper in you, Father. And let these truths and realities, let them change us, Lord. And God, in that process, mold us to look more like you. We need you this morning. And we thank you for everything you're doing. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. So let's stop for a moment. And if we could, let's kind of try to wrap our head around everything that's, that's happening here. And, and if we could see this interaction with these religious leaders, right? So these religious leaders, they see Jesus come in to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And the first thing he does is, you know, break stuff flip things around and, and yell and scream at people. And then in response, the religious authority is saying, well, how can you do this? And the question is asked, well, what do you think? And, and, and then Jesus continues to respond in parables. And it's interesting because there's a lot of parables that we're kind of getting into here, right? So if, if you were here, how would you interact or how would you respond to Jesus? Because what we're having here is a conflict. There's a moment of conflict between these religious authorities and Jesus. And if you know Michael, you know Michael kind of likes conflict. And it's not that I look for conflict, and I don't look to make trouble. It's not my heart. It's I like to address things, because if you don't address things, they usually fester and they grow to become something much bigger. Have you guys ever experienced that? You know, like ever getting, uh, ever withhold information or withhold saying how you really feel about something and then like a week later something happens and then you blow up and it, you don't even realize what it is. It's because there should have been something addressed. And I believe when two parties enter conflict the right way, there's actually a really beautiful conclusion that happens there because ultimately you're entering it to grow and learn and to come to terms. But the religious, elite, the religious elite, they're not really coming with open ears, are they, right? Oftentimes, we can approach a conflict with someone. We typically believe our perspective is the only perspective that's right, and we often don't come to the conversation with open ears. Have we, have we been in that situation before, right? Okay, at times, we can be confronted with truth, but our own pride on what we think is right can blind us to this truth. And that's why Jesus is communicating in these parables here. And he does it, like I said, for the remaining of this chapter and even into the next one. And if we can remember from a couple of months ago when we talked about parables, parables simply are stories that use metaphors and similes to communicate a message. So for our non-English majors, a metaphor is when we use words to connect ideas, but we don't take them literally. So if it snows um, over the Ozarks and you're driving between here and Branson, we could say the rolling hills of the Ozarks are covered in a blanket of snow. So is there really a blanket? No, it just looks like a blanket, a beautiful one, right? If somebody gets up early in the morning consistently, we can call them an early bird, but we know that their biology is not that of a bird. They are still human beings, but they're just getting up early. Um, and, and then a simile is something that connects two ideas using words like or as. So if someone's taking forever to get something done, we might say that they're as slow as a sloth, okay? And, and this right here, in this parable, there's this harsh reality that Jesus is explaining to the religious elite, and he's using this example of two children, one who says he will go to the vineyard but never does, and another who says he will go uh, says he will not go, but then eventually does. So Jesus is letting the religious elite know 
that they were like the child who said they would do something, but never actually did it. If we remember, God sent John the Baptist to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus. But the religious leaders were skeptical of the message John was bringing, but Israel's sinners listened to the message, and they turned from their wicked ways, and their lives were radically changed forever. You see, in Jesus' time, most of the religious elite made big shows and spectacles of their obedience, but they refused to recognize what God was doing. So when I was preparing for this time today, I think it was Tuesday, I was trying to think of an example that would kind of drive this home a little bit more, and I called my wife, and I didn't even finish the sentence that I was saying, and she started laughing, and I said, you know, babe, is there ever a time that, like, I have forgotten to do something, and, and that's all I've said, that's literally all I said, and my wife just cuts me off, and she goes, yeah, you're stupid base, and I was like, ah, oh, what are we talking about here, babe, like, what's, what's good, you okay, I mean, are we, are we good? But then I knew exactly what she was talking about. You see, we host house church on Thursday nights at this place called Casa de Butesi. Uh, that's the house of the Butesi. Um, and we have a really nice time. And if anybody hosts house church, they know those days can feel a little hectic, right? So Thursday, we're getting the kids to school. We're picking them up, making sure they're fed. My son usually has a drum lesson before um, we do house church. There's like a lot going on. And then 6.30 starts our uh, time of house church. And how we do house church in the beginning of it, Peggy usually leads us in worship. And I usually get my bass out. It's one of the few times I get to continue to play my bass in kind of a corporate setting. Um, and we play, and we have this great time of worship. And without fail, every time we're done with worship, I walk to the kitchen, and I put my guitar back in its case. I make myself a cup of decaffeinated coffee, and then I sit on the couch and I enjoy house church, where we talk about either the sermons from Sunday or if we're doing a video series or whatever it is. And house church wraps up and concludes maybe around 7.30, maybe 8 o'clock. I don't know. And uh, everybody leaves, and my wife looks at me and says, Michael, please put your guitar away. And I'm like, oh, babe, absolutely. I mean, you got it. Your wish is my command. You see, my guitar usually is there's a closet we have in our downstairs that has, like, my amps and, and all of our other instruments in it when we're not using them, and I just need to put it there. And I, church, you'd be so proud of me. I take that bass all the way from the kitchen, and I walk it all the way to the top of the stairs, which is roughly 11 to 12 feet. And it's just, like, it's just, it's just, it's just hanging out. It's really enjoying its space. It's like... It's good. And what happens is I get distracted because the kids are brushing their teeth or showering and bedtime routine is like chaos. It's like herding cats, you know, but it's like, come on, can you do this? Oh, I forgot. I was supposed to read this thing. Or, no, well, you're not doing it now. You, you wake up tomorrow morning and you can do it tomorrow morning or whatever. And all the time we're doing this and my wife is helping. She always looks at me and goes, Michael, please take your guitar downstairs. I'm like, baby, absolutely. Just like, I got it. Don't sweat it. I got it. Don't sweat it. It's, we just get to get the kids to bed. We get the kids to bed and I walk into the bathroom, brush my teeth, get ready for bed. And I lay in bed and then my wife gets ready for bed. And she lays down and religiously every single Thursday night, Michael, did you put your guitar downstairs? I was like, man, no, but I'll do it in the morning. Because I'm laying down and I'm really comfortable here in my bed. 
And she's like, yeah, okay. As the kids would say, bet, right? That's the, the kids. Here's a new word for you guys if you're over 40. When somebody says bet, that means like, yeah, right, prove it. Okay, so now you learned something at church today. So now you can be hip with the kids. So my wife would say, okay, that's great. Yeah, let's see what happens, right? And then the next morning it's there. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, I, I got to do something at the church. I got to do this or that. And inevitably... I make this promise that like never happens so much so that the last time this happened and I called my wife, she goes, the last time this happened, you didn't even realize that I put it away for you because I asked you at night, you didn't do it. And I woke up in the morning. You didn't even, you didn't even know that it was away. I'm like, wow, that's not good. Like, all right, there's that, right? I don't know why. There's no rhyme or reason to why that guitar doesn't get downstairs. I have no excuse. It makes no sense. It's just one of those things. You see, ultimately, church, I am not being responsible or being a man of my word until I follow through with what I said I was going to do. And if you've never experienced this in your life, I'll give you another example. Every parent or anyone who's ever worked with kids has had a time where they've asked a child to help with the chore or do something around the house, and the kids willingly, joyfully, happily, they agree Yes, I would love to help with that. And then they never bother to do it. So church, there's a truth here. And it's, it doesn't matter how agreeable your children are when you ask them to do something. They're only obedient when they get it done. And Christ is responding in this story to the religious elite with an example of children not following through with what they said they would do. And what he's really saying to these people is your lofty traditions and expressions of worship do not translate into actual submission to God. Listen, church, we can, we can show up on Sundays. We can show up on Wednesdays, Fridays, Tuesdays, I don't care, whatever day it is. We could sing worship songs. We can listen exclusively to 99.5 FM. We could read Christian books and listen to Christian podcasts, and none of that make you a Christian. Following Jesus requires confession. And confession is admitting that we are guilty of doing something that we have done. And church, I've been to court. I've sat in court waiting for certain people to write letters of recommendation or sit in different things. And I have sat in court and I have listened to men admit their wrongdoing admit to the crimes that they have committed, and I have watched court officers cuff them and take them away while their families weep and ask for grace and forgiveness. It's a horrible feeling. The payment for their transgression was to get locked up in a cell. And that moment is just a glimpse of what judgment day is going to look like, brothers and sisters. Church, there are consequences for our actions. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It is separation from the king of kings. And this is why Jesus is sharing this parable in Matthew. It is a warning. He knows what he's about to do on the cross, and he also knows that he will raise again and come again for final judgment. And if you don't believe that, you don't think final judgment is a thing, allow me to introduce you to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. It reads, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. Does that sound familiar? Just turn on the news for 15 minutes and everything you see fits that scripture right there. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. His words create. That's why when we speak, our words are important because we're made in God's image. Verse 6, by the waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. We're talking about Noah here. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Church, this world is going to pass away at some point. Jesus will return, and God will one day punish the ungodly and wicked. And this parable is a warning. And the religious leaders are making sacrifices and confessions, but their words are empty. Church, confession without repentance is just noise. That's all that it is. And church, in the same way I've seen men taken out of court and go to prison, I've also watched men humble themselves before the Lord, repent from the ways that they have lived, and they've allowed the Lord to change them from the inside out. There were times that we took in new students over the, the last 10 years, and whenever we, we would take them in, we'd get a write-up of all their transgressions, felony charges, drug charges, whatever it could be. The rap sheet was really long. And on one or more, on, on many occasions, many of those young people gave their lives to Jesus and allowed the Lord to radically transform their lives. And I remember moments where I was sitting, eating lunch or dinner with them, and I would look at them, and, and time had passed, and they had allowed the Lord to transform their life. And I would literally say, I don't remember why you came here. Process that, church. And that's real. And to this day, I, I can't remember the, the, the list of things of why they came there. I can't. Because what happened was the Lord got a hold of their life. They were transformed into something new. I've got a dear friend of mine that has a wild testimony. And whenever I ask him to share it, he's like, well, I'm not that person anymore. Some of that stuff I don't even remember. You hear me, church? There's times we like to glorify our past. For what? Like, we're happy about those mistakes. We're happy about those things we did. The glory is God redeeming us and saving us. It's not saying, well, you know, I used to party real hard. Well, good for you. How'd that work out for you? You know, because last time I checked, you still submitted yourself at the cross. So stop glorifying the past. Have real confession and real repentance and allow the Lord to change your life. Spurgeon said it best. He said, if you are renewed by grace and were to meet your old self... I am sure you'd be very anxious to get out of his company. <laughs> How about that, guys? Don't we want to be a church like that? To say, I'm not that person. I'm so far removed from those things. Church, we can learn a lot from the men and women who have struggled with addiction. I've never known anyone who understands grace more than those who have experienced it in abundance. We don't glorify the past, but we celebrate the life transformation that we have received through Christ Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, 
We need to allow him to transform our lives. And Jesus is pointing that out in our text today by saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they get it. How do you not? How do you not understand this? And what separates these two brothers in this parable is one word. And guys, it is a tough and challenging word. It is obedience. You see, the first son rejected the work that was in the vineyard, but something at some point clicked in him, and he realized he needed to go back out in that field. So church, when we are sharing the gospel with people, when we're evangelizing or ministering, it can be so easy to get frustrated with the people that we're sharing the gospel with. Oh, I don't want anything to do with them. They're just, oh, they don't want it. They don't want it. Really? You're planting seeds. And instead of getting frustrated, take that and get on your knees and pray for them. Let the Lord water those seeds. I watched my brother minister to somebody when I was in high school, and nothing happened. And four years later, when he came back to visit, that young woman gave her life to Jesus, and she's still serving Jesus to this day. So there is something about just committing to sharing the gospel of Jesus and letting the Lord do his work. Obedience is important for many reasons. And author Mary Fairchild would assert that obedience is important because Jesus calls us to obey, as we find in the book of John. That obedience is an act of worship, if we read the book of Romans, and that God rewards our obedience in that we prove our love to God, and we see that in James and 2 John. But I want to challenge us to think of obedience in an even deeper way. 1 Samuel 15, says this, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings or sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? What's more important, showing up on Wednesday or being obedient to the thing that God called us to do? What's more important, I tithe the most money, Lord, look at me, I did these things, or saying, hey, I don't want you to do that, I actually want you to go do this. What's more important, listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Church, there is a tremendous joy and an unparalleled freedom in obedience because we are walking in God's will And follow me, church, God's will is his relationship with us. Hear me, church. That's what it's about. It's not about a show. It's not about fireworks and fog lights and all these other things. It's about a relationship. That's what he wants. So when he's asking you to listen to me and do this thing, it's because he's trying to draw you nearer to him. Because he sees who you can be, and that's what he wants more than anything. Church, here's something to ponder for a moment. We often hear teachings about obedience that sound like put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus, and that is absolutely the only place where it belongs and it should rest. But when the Lord is calling you, the question we must ask ourselves is, can the Lord trust you to obey? Do you hear me? Can the Lord trust you to obey? Can we follow through with the things the Lord is calling us to do, or do we give it lip service? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, sounds great. You see, we can know exactly what the Lord wants us to do and exactly where he wants to take us, and we can talk about it with every single person that we come in contact with, but then never actually do it. Does the Lord need us to accomplish his mission? No. He's God. He could do whatever he wants, can he? But the Lord wants to work in 
and through us. And in that, have a deeper relationship with us. So church, if I could, if the worship team can start making their way up. Um, this parable, this parable should challenge us this morning. It should challenge us to ask ourselves, have we actually confessed our sins to the Lord? Have we actually repented? And have we actually, truly, really been obedient to the King of Kings? Do we think that because we're believers, we have a privileged position to close the doors and only have the people come into this church or sit at God's table that we approve of? Or are we inviting other people to come to the table and find repentance? We can walk into a church. When we walk into a church, are we putting on a front? Or are we the same here at this church as we are away from this place? Because you can fool us. That's fine. You can't fool the big man upstairs. Can the Lord trust us to be obedient in what he's asking? And look, obedience, church, I get it. It's going to look different for every person. And for some of us, it's going to be stepping up and following through on something the Lord is physically asking you to do. But for others, it's simply committing more time to pray and read your word and spend time with the king of kings. Whatever it is, be faithful to follow through with what the Lord is asking you. Faith is the choice we make, and obedience is the actions we take. So church, as we close, I was spending time with some of my friends this week, and a good friend of mine, Tony, shared this thing that they do at his work where they call it like a red light, a yellow light, and a green light. When they meet with their staff or their employees, they ask these like, what needs to stop, what's going good, and what needs to start? And it, when he said that, we were just talking about work. When he said that, I went, oh, my goodness, Tony, that is like, that is good. I said, can I use that on Sunday? He said, take it. And we, did, we wrote these questions together. And the first is, what in your life needs to stop in order to grow deeper with the Lord? Church, think about that. What's holding you back? What needs to stop in order to grow deeper with the Lord? And number two, what's going well in your walk with the Lord that you need to keep doing? What's feeding that soul? What's growing you closer to Jesus? But lastly, what is the Lord asking you to start doing? Guys, the older I get, and I'm not that old, but just days go by much quicker. Our interactions happen much faster. Life is a, is a vapor, it is quick. I'm watching my children, I feel like I blink and they're like adults. And those who have lived that, you know what I'm talking about. Let's take our time and take it seriously to be obedient to the things that God is doing. Don't we want to be a part of that? And guys, it's not that our church grows bigger. It's that more people find Jesus. I don't care if they come here or anywhere. I just want them to find hope in who he is. Because I know the peace and the freedom that he's given me. And I want that for other people. Don't you? So church, what's holding us back this morning? What's he asking us to start doing? Jesus, we love you. And Jesus, we thank you that you are with us today. And Father, that you have poured out your spirit on this place. Lord, this word was challenging for me. So God, I pray you stir in all of us a heart that wants to be obedient to you. That when you speak, Jesus, we listen. And when you point us in a direction, we go. 
But also when you ask us to be quiet, we close our mouths and we listen to you. God, we want to be used as a body. Lord, let us not be like the brother who said they would go and never went. Lord, let us learn our lessons from the tax collectors and the prostitutes that when we encounter grace, you're right there. Jesus, we need you. Pour out your spirit. Meet with us today. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.